0: Light, camera, action. Today, we have an amazing, iconic guest, Jonathan Gray, entertainment lawyer, filmmaker, producer, storyteller, gambler, and amazing singer. I finger paint and glue things as well, Charlie. (laughs) So, I want to start... Because I like to start engaging with the idea of, of the journey you you have been a uh, uh, many shapes as an entertainment lawyer and then on to becoming a producer but you 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 began and are known uh, uh, to many with you know some of the mythology uh, and also that the, the reality is that you are both an entertainment law firm but also housing. Uh, uh, a, a post-production entity, and that sort of uh, uh, centered and, and kind of created an atmosphere of uh, a kind of an incubator and a and a place where people gather and artists gather and all of that. So, take me right to the center of of the shape of of, of your of your firm, and and the way things kind of converged with the story to start off with, just because I think it's interesting of how, uh, uh Brian Divine and gigantic came together with it. And then we can move and kind of span out into the whole world. Sure. Of Ray I,
1: I will say, uh, with a little bit of tongue in cheek that, you know, I, I never refer to myself as an entertainment lawyer. It sounds too much like chiropractor, like I'm a doctor, not, you know, you know, not really a doctor. Uh, you know, I got my start Charlie as a, as a trial lawyer um, back in 1990 and, and made my way into entertainment with that, uh, path initially as, as an intellectual property litigator. And, uh, uh, had studied um, avant-garde cinema. I, I went to a couple of different schools, but I studied with Ken Jacobs, and uh, you know who's a, a pretty uh, uh, you know sort of iconic uh, uh, avant-garde filmmaker, and studied the works of Stan Brakhage and Kenneth Anger. So I was always sort of on this you know film path, and spent the first four or five years of my career as a trial lawyer, nothing sexy, representing uh, manufacturers and maintainers of elevators and escalators and material handling systems and forklifts. And at some point, uh, nineteen. 95, uh I was so itching to just make a movie and uh, align myself with a, with my oldest friend, Michael Clancy, and we made a, uh, a short film, which sort of set this whole path in, in, in motion. The first short film that I made was called Emily's Last Date, which premiered at Sundance in 1996. Uh, this goes back a while. And that sort of uh, you know paved the path for me. I, I, it was my first experience at Sundance. I've been there every year since. I think this is 28 or 29 coming up. Assuming there is a Sundance, uh, and and you know, at some point realized uh, that I could actually combine the two and and uh, you know, work in the field where my passion was, and and you know, my efforts over the next couple of years were, were really how to sort of uh, weasel my way into you know into doing film, uh, into, into doing film work. Brian Devine, who you mentioned, who's the the grand poobah and principal of of uh, the gigantic universe, gigantic pictures, and gigantic studios. I met initially as his lawyer um, back in 19, I'm going to say 94, 95. And, uh, you know, we, we became brothers right from the, you know, the get-go and, and, and we're, you know, plotting right from the outset to how we could combine our, you know, our worlds and the, 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 the post facility that, that you referred to, um, you know, the genesis of that, uh, you know, really came together, um, you know, based upon this desire to bring community together, which you, you referred to. I've, I've never worked in a business, um, and I'm I'm 25 years into the, into the, you know, film and television business that was so community oriented and so collaboratively, you know, oriented and boy, Charlie, not, you know, getting out ahead and know we'll come back, you know, owning the post, you know, is, is, is such a part of the game. And, and, you know, Brian and his, you know, wonderful team have, you know, not only brought their, uh, you know, creative capital to the table, but Brian has built a, you know, a universe that is, you know really state of the art in terms of of the post process and he's got a, a production services company as well so the whole concept that that led to this facility I'm in and we'll, we'll take a little tour later was really rooted in in community and the acknowledgement that you know bringing folks together uh, you know in, in a world that they feel safe and that you have the resources to be able to actually advance you know uh, things in the production world you know uh, you know was was essential you know to the process and and that's what we you know in broad strokes what we you know, managed to put together over a lot of, of years, you know, Brian and I have been, uh, you know, partners in crime, um, you know, really since, uh, gosh, you know, over 20 years at
0: this point. And, and you, you created, you created that in a, in a smaller sense to start off with in Soho, when you first converted, yeah. he was still sort of, uh, developing the idea of gigantic music before it became what it would become. So is that how you started to deal with Brian with, with his first label? Because gigantic music then became gigantic pictures, yeah. then became gigantic posts, and it became its own world and, and then grew once you moved to Chelsea where you are today.
1: We, we, really, we really grew up together in, in uh, you know, in that world, uh, you know, and uh, one, one person that, that, that bears mentioning probably more than anyone is Bruce Meyerson, you know, who, uh, you know, has been, um, you know, my business partner since the get go. When I decided to make a, a, a change, you know, from being a trial lawyer into the entertainment business, uh, which not coincidentally was, was actually the, 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 right when my father, you know, passed, it's, that, that sort of glass ceiling sort of uh, broke. And I said, you know what, I got to do what I want to do. And the first call I made was to Bruce, you know, because there was nobody that I trusted and continue to trust more than than Bruce. And we really, you know, set out together uh, both to to uh, put together the law practice, you know, Bruce from the business perspective, and to start, uh, you know, sort of building up this uh, this dream of, of having a, a you know I wouldn't say a film studio, but being able to have the resources to um, be able to facilitate, to harbor, and enable you know filmmakers to make their uh, you know their movies. And that started uh, down on Broome Street, which. Uh, you know, I, I stumbled into at this moment that I decided to make a change, and I'm I, I a blessed person. Uh, I stumbled into uh, um, a space on Broom Street, which I, I know you recall. Yep. five thousand square feet uh, on uh, on Broom between Worcester and Green. The space was uh, that I moved into was um, uh, was a, a, a jingle house that was um, that was run by Michael Clancy, who I mentioned before, his in laws, and they were getting ready to retire and had five thousand square feet. 16 foot ceilings, floor to ceiling uh, windows. Uh, I'm going to hate myself even for saying this uh, for $3,750 a month. Yeah. So I stepped into uh, an absolute dream situation and built from there. You know, with uh, you know, with uh, uh, with the Levinsons who ran Double L Music at the time uh, to be able to build out you know this this dream and uh, and that whole process was um, you know I sort of became a weekend warrior building out the space if you remember all the cubicles and so on. Oh yeah. And we brought in producers and uh, dot comers and, you know, this is bear in mind the late nineties and, you know, started building the community right then. And, uh, you know, it wasn't just having, um, you know, a huge space, which was an an absolute blessing, but I was, you know, uh, I'll say kind of self-servingly smart enough to bring in, um, you know, a a, a post guy, you know, who, uh, who had an avid. And you remember those days, Charlie, like, you know, uh, the the friend and favor rate for the avid room was twenty five hundred dollars a week back then. Crazy, I now for twenty five hundred bucks, you buy the laptop, the software, and rent a basement in Brooklyn. You've got an editing suite. So the world changed a lot, but uh, you know we had everything under you know under one you know under one roof back then. And uh, not not to ramble on too much, but you know part of what built the community, um, and I know you know this well, was um, was having parties and having social events and having rap parties and launch parties and script read parties and uh, and part of it is because, you know, I kind of have the host gene, but it was a wonderful opportunity to bring, you know, all kind of great folks together, including you, uh, yeah. you know, Charlie, and to bring those communities together, uh, which wasn't just film and television, but, uh, you know, the fine art community. And I mentioned the dot the, the com world, you know, pseudo.com and, you know, sort of was part of my life back then, if anyone recalls pseudo. Uh, and it, it really became a, a, you know, sort of an incubator for a lot of creative folks. And, and, and again, I forgive the redundancy. Having those creative folks in that incubator and all this wonderful creative, uh, you know, capital and, and you know, collaborative, uh, you know, spirit, work much better having the post there as well and having the physical resources and the
0: infrastructure to be able to support advancing these dreams. Yeah, absolutely. And and for me, you know, the if you if you go out into the world, I mean, I have to think of, you know, your your colleagues. Or 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 the community of of attorneys that represent talent, you're one of a kind. There's no one else doing what what you do, right? In terms of oh, you of, know, that I'm, representing, I representing the council as well as 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 doing this uh, 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 sort of community creative community and also uh, a place where people can can finish their work and walk across the hall and talk to their attorney about their deal from the train. You I think it is a unique
1: setup. Certainly having a, you know, law office for, you know, for the last 25 years that has a post-production, you know, facilities is, I think an extraordinarily unique, you know, situation. When I, you know, going back to when I, I first, you know, got into entertainment law, you know, was the same time that I, you know, I decided to produce my first, you know, short back in 95. And, you know, I, really had not only no familiarity familiarity with the entertainment law business per se, didn't really have too many, you know, connections. So I reached out to a, a friend who sent me some, you know, pro forma uh, documents that I could use for a lawyer friend for, for the short. And Charlie, like the location agreement agreement that they sent me, uh, you know, which was kind of them to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to share the documents with me, was a Disney or a Viacom, like 22 page location agreement that I looked at and it was just like bewildering the only thing that location agreement would do would be to, uh, you know, diminish the likelihood that you could actually secure a location because nobody, you know, at a, at a gas station on a highway is going to sign a 22 page location agreement. And it occurred to me then just, just, you know, common sense, frankly, that I could accomplish in those 22 pages, you know uh, you know, uh, what they accomplished in those 22 pages in a page. It's not because I'm brilliant. It's because there's a practicality to doing things that, sometimes the law business, you know, kind of takes you astray from, you know, it ain't that complicated. So when I saw that, I was so frustrated uh, that, uh, you know, I really, it put a fire under me to get more involved in the entertainment uh, law community. And I managed to, and thanks to my sister, quite frankly, the way I got into entertainment law, my sister who was a massage therapist back in the the mid nineties met a a very prominent entertainment lawyer named Phil Cowan. Uh, who was a client of hers in the massage therapy world. I don't know, I'm not sure if you know this story. And and oh, no. she was all excited because she knew I wanted to get into entertainment. And she had a, you know, a big shot client. And she said, I'll introduce you to him. And I said, you know what? Let's let's think about this a little bit. I had already started going to film festivals, Telluride and, and uh, you know, and Sundance in particular. And I just got back from Telluride. I said, you know what? Don't say anything, but next time you go to Massage Phil, wear the Telluride Film Festival T-shirt that I got you. And let's see what happens. And you know, sure enough, uh, Phil started the conversation and said, "Oh, you went to Telluride? No, my brother did. What does your brother do? He's a lawyer. I'd love yeah. to meet him." So I, I and I told Phil ultimately that I had set him up, and 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 that's sort of what got the ball rolling. And and uh, the way this all started was at a card table. You know, Phil Cowan was was not only a brilliant uh, lawyer and and uh, the president of the Copyright Society, he was also a, a two-time world champion bridge player. And although I'm not a, a bridge player. Uh, As you know, I'm the son of a professional gambler. I grew up in casinos, you know, my whole life. I I was born not with a silver spoon, but with a, you know, with a deck of cards in my hands. Phil was a much better card player, um, but I was a much better drinker, you know? So (laughs) we hung out, uh, you know, at his fancy apartment on Central Park West, played a game called Hearts, which is very similar to Bridge. And I managed to beat him at his own game, which happened like one out of 10 times, but that was how I met Phil. And before the evening was over, uh, we were trying to sort out a deal for me to work for his firm. And that's how I got into, Uh, entertainment law from, you know, from, from the outset and being in that position at the firm, Cowan Debates and Abrams and Shepard, they're still around. Steve Shepard, who's a a mentor of mine, is now my lawyer. Um, I had a a, a place to operate from and I was able to quickly, uh, you know, make my way, uh, you know, to, to having a position with the Bar Association. Uh, One of the lawyers there, Tim Debates, uh, you know, was, uh, was, uh, had some uh, high position in the Bar Association. And I pitched him on the idea of putting together a, a, like an independent motion picture committee. And he said, that's a great idea, who's gonna head it? And I said, well, I'll, you know, I'll be the chairperson of it. So I managed within about, you know, a month of being in the entertainment business to have set up and kind of appointed myself as the chairperson of the New York State Bar Association Committee on Motion Picture and and, and Television. And that was my sort of, you know, foundation intro, you know, to being a, an entertainment lawyer and, and uh, you know, and I, I just really wanted to tell these lawyers that there was a better way of doing it. So I would have panel discussions and basically bring on filmmakers to tell lawyers how they were not doing their job properly, you know, which didn't go over that well with the Bar Association. But frankly, I really didn't care because these lawyers needed to hear that they needed to have a better understanding of how things work. And guess what? A 22-page location agreement on a low-budget independent film doesn't work. And you can accomplish the same thing in two pages, you know, written in English. So, I, I'd like to think that you know the, the, the foundation of building the practice that I was privileged to build was based upon practical stuff and being able to communicate with my clients. Not every entertainment lawyer or film lawyer needs to have produced a film, but boy, it helps to have made the mistakes and learn from them. You know, so so the whole foundation of this is really practical. You know, is really uh, you know understanding um, you know what it means to make a movie. And then figuring out how lawyers can serve that part of it. I'm not just saying that. You know, you're not here to serve the lawyers. The lawyers are here to serve you. You know, so uh, I know I'm but veering a little bit off course here. But you know, the whole you know basis for you know sitting in the to seat today has been you know wanting to be involved in film and being able to effectively facilitate you know the process and, and uh, you know God knows with all the great people you know that that uh, I've been able to surround myself with and that includes you, Charlie. Um, I, you know, I, I I'm I get, I'm gonna get weepy eyed. I'm playing with my heroes, Charlie, you know, and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great blessing, but I, you know, let's move on
0: before, before I cry. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, I, I personally, not to dive into gambling, but I love it. And I love the, I love the relationship that you have with it, not only because you're, you're, you're dad, but also because of your knowledge. And, and I think it, I mean, let's face it, being a filmmaker, a producer is a gamble. Yeah, and and you're you're not only a, 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 a representing factor of all that, and a, and a and a pioneer in in what you do, but also with a tremendous foundation in in the process and the psychology and the skill of gambling.
1: It's it, it is a, a unique to talk background to have coming into this business. Uh, and, and I will say, Charlie, that, that you know, I, I, my father was a professional gambler. You know, I say that with the, the acknowledgement that being a, pro, a professional gambler is tantamount to being a professional smack addict in certain regard, because it is a compulsive disorder. That is a different and longer conversation. Uh, you know, my father was a, was a was was a mathematician in many respects. So you know, the manner in which I won't spend too much time on the on the the, the gambling, but you know, the manner in which uh, you know that was approached. For example, you know, I I, I played professional blackjack for years. I supported my law habit as a professional gambler for many years. Uh, was a funny way to say it. But, you know, the gambling in that regard is just numbers. A a well-trained, a very well-trained monkey could play professional blackjack. It's just numbers. And figuring out how you can get that very small marginal edge and then sticking with the game plan and playing perfect blackjack and good money management and counting cards, which is actually pretty easy. All that comes together, so it's not just you know putting money on the on the pass line and crossing your fingers. There's a lot of of, uh, of math that goes into playing um, you know effectively, uh, you know, because otherwise you're just throwing your, your money away. Now that that does apply to the film business, you know, it is an incredibly risky business. But to be clear, you know, in the film business, almost even more so than the the uh, the, the gambling business. Having an understanding of all the variables, whether they be financial or talent variables which are all over the place, and how that all comes together, you know there is absolutely a science to it that needs to work with the creative side of it, you know, and sort of right back to the lawyers who may be at that table, you know uh, facilitating the process you know the lawyering uh, you know again it's almost sort of um, you know being able to 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 effectively bridge that space between the tires and the road, you know what I mean? If the tires are the, are, you know, is the film and the road is the financier, there needs to be, you know, some individual or individuals that are able to make all those things work, you know, together. And uh, and there's a lot of different connections between the gambling world. I will say this, you know, my father died over 20 years ago now. You know, I spent my life, you know, paying and collecting from bookmakers and running money. And, and, you know, I'm not a gambler. I'm not, I'm not saying that defensively, I, I, I'm just not. I did it with my father for as long as he was living. Uh, And, you know, I still have all that information and and experience, but, you know, I haven't been a ball game, Charlie, you know, since my father passed, you know, it's just not of interest, you know, to me. Um, I don't want to ever be in a situation where I simply let go of the dice and cross my fingers and hope that everything works out. Uh, You know, I I was going to say I'm not a control freak, but anytime I say that, I realize I'm kind of saying I'm a control freak. I want to have all the information and have a grasp on all the variables and how that comes together within the collaboration and always being uh, prepared to, uh, you know, to pivot, because, you know, the playing field changes, and you know, this is probably better than anybody, oh, the yeah. playing field changes in the film world
0: constantly. Constantly. And you, you back to Bruce said, I mean, I, if I'm not correct, you guys met in fantasy baseball? <laughs> yes, Bruce was, and continues
1: to be, the commissioner of, of, uh, of, of the longest running fantasy sports league in history. He started it in high school in, um, gosh, uh, in, the, in the early 80s, uh, I'm going to say. It may be getting close to 40 years. I joined him in the late 80s. So, I, you know, and, uh, you know, one of the, 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 you know, amazing things about Bruce, and I, you know, I've told this story more than once, um, you know, he was not only the commissioner of, of the league with sort of unilateral authority over, you know, management and decisions and, you know, trade vetoes and all that type of stuff. He was also a participant and continues to be a participant in the league. That is tricky because there's obviously an inherent conflict of interest there. But boy, from the first moment I met Bruce, uh, you know, that that conflict doesn't exist. Bruce is is, uh, you know, it's just he's just he defines mensch, you know. Uh, So having him at the table to be able to manage me, keep me on something of a leash, you know, in terms of the finances. Well, you know, one downside, I guess, of growing up, you know, you know, at a crap table, so to speak, is money is ammunition. You know, uh, and yeah. I, it's been difficult for me to pay attention to it. It comes in, it goes out. So you know, Bruce has been. Um, I mean, there's no way I get out of the box without Bruce, and it's certainly not just on the business side. We've creatively collaborated together on on just you know most of the projects that, that uh, you know I've, I've been able to work on over the years.
0: Yeah, no, no, that's fantastic. And 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 you you also launched your way in the in, in and in a sort of a more of a contemporary period with. Uh, a fair amount of uh, not just films, but also unscripted work like the yeah. stuff you were doing with Damon and all that, and uh, 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 very exciting. You know, I mean, I, I, I go back in time because you and I connect back to 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 Tom McCarthy and Station Agent on forward. I mean, I was looking back; I w- I was kind of reminiscing back to to that period and realized that we were sort of. In parallel, working with filmmakers like Tom McCarthy, Lee Daniels, Abel, Fira, <laughs> uh, uh, and Mitchell Lichtenstein, Boaz Yakin, the list goes on. And so I'm looking at and, and Darren as well. I, I, uh, I, I worked on Black Swan as well, which
1: I see over your shoulder.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I say, I, I was saying the other day to someone who uh, asked me about uh, my, my own career. And I said, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, one of the liabilities was I became a bit of a movie poster store after a while. and don't have enough room for all of the stuff quite frankly.
1: No, it's the same oh. here, but that's talk about a, a champagne problem, Charlie.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, speaking of business and all of that, let's talk a little bit about your years of, of, of sort of witnessing the different models for film financing and your, your sort of position, because one of the things that I, I always marked on with you in terms of disposition was whether or not everyone else was out there trying to do all of these complicated debt deals against foreign sales, you were always pressing for a, a low budget, uh, a sort of equity deal, equity only a simpler way to handle the the gamble. And, uh, and I, I feel that there was such tremendous wisdom in, in that thinking. And, uh, uh, and I think also today uh, uh, much of that sort of old school stuff that was going on with pre-sales is kind of dissolving anyway, because of the changes that are going on. But talk a little bit about the, the generations of years that you dealt with films uh, uh, that were putting together their deals and how things are going now and all of the, of the, the money aspect that you deal with.
1: Generations, geez! I blink, Charlie. I've been doing this for thirty years. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, and and the world has has changed. The playing field has changed. You know, obviously, you know, Charlie, the 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 equity finance model, you know, really, you know, as you know, only only works with a certain level of of budget. And most of my you know most of my career, I have been operating in the low budget independent film world, which you know ranges you know from little you know hundred thousand dollar you know running guns, you know, under the ultra low budget you know film agreement to you know, to the black swans and the preciouses of of the world. So, yeah. but but where my passion has been is really in the lower budget, you know, world, in the station agent world. I won't, you know, I won't reference that budget, but it was a tiny little budget. And it was a little right. film that could for sure. You know, what, what's most important in, in all of this, uh, you know, Charlie, and, and what I, 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 you know, come back to it. I didn't create this, but, you know, transparency and equitable deals. That's what's most important. Like, and that is easy, you know, you know, for me and not so easy necessarily in the, you know, in the industry. You know, when you, the more complicating, the you know, the financing structure, you know, the more likely it is that, you know, that there's someone that's getting, how do I say this politely, the shit end of the stick, you know. And in those, you know, debt financed, you know, against pre-sales, you know, models where there's, you know, two or three different layers of debt and, you know, against the tax credit and against the estimates and the MES piece and like that. You know, there's a reason that that, uh, you know, behind closed doors, the equity that sits at the bottom of that is referred to as the dumb money, you know, and that never sat well with me. You know, uh, so there are certain models that, um, you know, are the more, you know, at least in the past, the foreign sales driven models where the only folks that, that are really in a, a position of likelihood of recouping are the folks that are at top of the waterfall with the debt plays. So I had a distaste for those types of models simply because, you know, more often than not, the, the equity was was getting left out in the cold. Um, so the, the, you know, the equity finance model, I'm going to talk a little bit about that further. It's tough to make that work with budgets over $2 million and it necessitates having some wealthy, you know, individuals or, 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 funds that, um, you know, understand and appreciate the nature of, of the risk. Every good investor agreement, Charlie says, you're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your money. Make check payable to blank. Now a little more eloquent and fleshed out than that. There's no, Riskier business than the, you know, than the film business. You know, maybe the restaurant business, or the, you know, used to be the theater business, but that may have pushed, you know, above the, uh, you know, the independent film business. Folks need to get into it, understanding that, uh, sure, we're going to produce a film that has a likelihood of, of success in the marketplace, and we'll be as smart as we can in that regard. But you know, a lot of these films, you know, aren't oriented towards appealing to the dumbest person in the back of the room. Not that every successful film is oriented that way. But, you know, it's, it's the reason that little films like Station Agent get ma- can get made. Can you imagine going out there and pitching Station Agent to a studio, you know, back then, you know, where with yeah. Pete as the lead? And I mean, it's just, who would look at that film? Like, yeah. that film only gets done, in my opinion, because of folks coming into it. Sure, they may have seen some commercial upside, but it's because they read this script. And I've got the original draft of the script sitting in my drawer over there. Um, and, and they fell in love. And they realized, wow not that it's a piece of art, but this is a wonderful little story, you know, that's unusual and unique and would never get made in a studio. And that film, you know, launched a lot of careers, you know, um, Pete already, uh, Pete Dinklage already had a career in the business, but he was absolutely the, the leading man in that film. And I think folks, you know, may have looked at him a little bit, you know, differently because it wasn't about, uh, it would be, the film was not about his, his, his height. It was about his, his charm and his, you know, charisma and, and his wonderful, you know, performance and all that. Um, and I, not to stick too much in the station agent, but boy, what a, an affair of the heart that was, Charlie. I mean, that was the first film that I did that anybody, you know, sort of saw. And it swept at Sundance and, you know, uh, Broadway Bobby Cannavale and, and you know, yeah. uh, Patty Clarkson. I mean, it's just Clarkson. a wonderful group.
0: And it and it and it took
1: off uh, uh, theatrically as well. Oh, it sure did. And, and uh, you know, the old uh, Miramax paid a good number for it. Um, and you know, I, I cannot mention the station agent without mentioning Mary Jane Skalsky, who I've been oh, you know uh, close friends with, and I've worked with as a lawyer and a collaborator. We produce films together. Um, Mary Jane is is an instrument is as instrumental as anyone in terms of my you know career. And and you know, Tom also. Tom is is a good guy, and an incredibly loyal person. I work with Tom on all his films until he landed, you know, in, in studio land. He's been yeah. very loyal to the folks that, uh, you know, uh, that, that he's worked with.
0: Um, yeah, you were with him right through to Cobbler, I mean, before Spotlight. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, and with, you had a funny story you once told me, and I don't, I mean, I, I've been close friends and compadres with Lee Daniels over the years, but you, I, I can't remember the exact thing, but you ran into him in a funny way. Tell the Lee Daniels story.
1: Oh God, there's so many, uh, there's so many Lee stories. And and uh, Lee also was, was, uh, you know, was such a privilege to have worked with him. And, and uh, I mean, gosh, I, I wouldn't know where to begin with, uh, you know, with, uh, with Lee, he is absolutely inimitable. He is a brilliant person as, as folks know, and, you know, it was a struggle, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, for Lee as as brilliant as he is. And, and as many, you know, sort of, uh, you know, relationships that he built far before, you know, well before he met me, uh, you know, being a, a gay black man in the industry, you know, back then, it was difficult for him to, to sort of penetrate, you know, and obviously, um, you know, with, uh, you know, with the Shadowboxer and, and and Tennessee on, on the directing side, he launched, a, you know, some something between a career and a, and a, and a brand, you know, uh, at this point, you know. Um, so I, uh, Charlie, I'm not sure what specific you know story well, you're referring to. Lee and I had how you, so many different
0: uh, how you, met you know experiences. Wasn't that wasn't it when you were in you were still in Soho when you met him, right? And and he had oh, Lee Daniels. That's... He had Lee Daniels Entertainment, um, and he was not yet a director. He didn't become a director until Precious. So yeah. He did that. He did. He did. Well, Jeff Lee. Popper, uh, Lee. Did Woodsman. You know. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And I actually, the, the first time I met uh, Lee, he, he he sent in his advance team first when, you know, it was down at Soho. And that was uh, the unbelievably talented and wonderful Lisa Cortez. Uh, right. You know, uh, Precious, she produced Precious, you know, no matter what the, the credits say, she is the force alongside Lee that made that film, you know, which was more than a film, it became a cultural phenomenon. That is Lisa Cortez. So Lisa came up uh, first to my office and we sat down, you know, sort of, doing the prelim check to make sure it was kind of worth Lee's time. And then Lee came up and, you know, he plopped down, he had a, you know, big Afro at the time. And, and, you know, he basically, uh, you know, said, who the fuck are you, you know, uh, you know, more or less. And, you know, I think he presumed like a lot of folks did that. I probably came from, you know, a, a background where my father was a lawyer and I just got right into it, you know, and, and, you know, and he, I think he recognized that I was probably a little different than most of the lawyers he had worked with before. And then there was this amazing sort of uh Little thing that happened when, when Lee was downstairs uh, waiting to come up, uh, um, we were upstairs from the old Peter Beard Gallery that was closing down at the time. And he was just sort of you know, walking around the Peter Beard Gallery and, and uh, uh, you know, he mentioned he was down there and he, you know, he saw some stuff that he liked. Meanwhile, at the time, I I'm uh, uh, you know, I knew the guys, I knew Peter, and there was another fellow that, uh, amazingly his name slips my mind, uh, Peter Tunney, who's now become a very prominent artist. He used to run uh, Beard's Gallery. And, uh, you know, we had a relationship and he owed me a few like that. So uh, when I walked Lee downstairs, you know, we, we stepped into the beard uh, gallery and I, you know, sort of whispered into Tunney's ear, you know, take care of Lee. And he basically just let Lee take what he wanted. So, you know, Lee took a, you know, a couple of frames and, and like that. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it was a, a, an interesting way to, to meet Lee. And he did, you know, sort of look at me after that first meeting and, you know, said, who the fuck are you? So we met on a very interesting basis. And it was really a wonderful, you know, collaborative relationship. And and, uh, and what a privilege it was to work with Lee, you know, and, and Lisa in those, you know, in those times. And, and uh, Lee is, and not to dwell too much on him, he is a force of nature and is, uh, you know, was so inspirational for me in terms of pursuing my dreams, because he had a dream, and there wasn't nobody that was going to
0: stop him. And here we are. And here we are. And yeah. here we are. So, you got the opportunity to launch yourself film by film into, into more and more titles as, as counsel. And then at a time later to skip forward, when you had it, the collaboration with, with, with Ron Perelman um, on Pottersville, tell me a little bit about the story behind that. Cause I, I, I heard a story about something that took place on the set that I think will for me go down in history I don't know if you remember the story about Ron and the IATSE. Do you remember that? Oh, sure.
1: And there's a ton of... uh,
0: To me, this is one of the great independent filmmaking stories because so many of the indie deals are are SAG, DGA. Charlie, forgive me. My phone is ringing, oddly enough.
1: I'm not sure what... All right, I think I took care of it. Um, and let me, I, I, I'll, I will talk to you about the, I'm sorry. They approached the set, the I came to the set. Oh, no, I, I, I totally remember the story uh, and oh, I'm, I'm happy to share fantastic. it. I, I, I really, I skipped over such a huge thing here when I, when I uh, and, and I will get right back to Pottersville. Uh, you know, when I, uh, you know, when I started the, uh, uh, the practice originally, uh, you know, after I was working with Cowan Debates, you know, with Bruce, you know, Bruce Meyerson, you know, uh, you know, sort of running everything on the, on the business side of things. Uh, I originally met a fellow named Robert Spinack, because this all started as Spinack and Gray. Rob was just out of Fordham Law School, which was my alma mater, and was working uh, um, basically as an intern at at the old Fine Line. So when Robert uh, Spinack and I got together, we formed Spinack and Gray sort of overnight. Um, you know, as we used to say, like you know, uh, I had the drugs, he had the street corners, which is to say, we weren't selling drugs. I had the experience in the film industry, and he had the relationships. So we were able to start a practice working with folks like Ira Deutschman and, and uh, Peter Newman and and some of the real old guard wonderful uh, you know producers and and uh, that's how the practice started and then it expanded you know with Evan Krauss we became Gray Krauss uh, and uh, and then it expanded beyond that and Andre DeRochey and Josh Sandler and Ian Stratford and you know all the wonderful people that comprised you know the firm Nicole Compass who was you know we worked with him for many years and that sort of built the foundation that that all of this, you know, started from. And I don't want to leave them on the side because we all built this together. Yeah. The opportunity that popped up with uh, with uh, with Ron and talk about Inimitable. Ron is, is a brilliant, beautiful, smart, funny, lovely, politically, I wouldn't say correct, but politically sort of on point dude. Um, you know, I met uh, Ron when he was putting to, through Jay Cohen, uh, who's a, an agent at Gersh, uh, um, and a really straight shooting good guy agent. Uh, you know, it was about putting together a, a film fund that was, uh, oriented towards making films in uh, economically sort of distressed portions of, of New York, you know, which was great. Uh, I'm a New Yorker, Ron's a New Yorker. So that's how that started. And it wasn't specifically about Pottersville. It was about putting together his Wing and a Prayer um, film group and production company with uh, with his partner, Josh uh, Josh Crook. So it started with me as a lawyer. And uh, and then, you know, you know, I fell in love with Ron and Josh and, and uh, the Pottersville opportunity you know, w- was something that existed bef- uh, before, uh, you know, wing and a prayer, and it just sort of came together. I was working with, um, you know, with the writer, uh, with uh, uh, with Dan, the writer on that project. He was very close with uh, with Mike Shannon, and that's how it started. So working with, uh, you know, with Dan and, and Mike already being part of it in a very unusual role because the film, you know, which I, I like to think of as as sort of a uh, like a Stoner Capra movie, uh, Mike was playing the Jimmy Stewart. Role, which is unusual for him to play, in a very fantastic, unusual universe, and uh, you know, it was, it was, you know, it was, uh, it was that, you know, sort of, um, uh, you know, package with Mike on board, who's an actor uh, magnet, that, uh, you know, that was already there. Now, uh, the stars aligned because Ron was looking for projects in New York. This was set in Pottersville, basically New York to begin with. And, uh, you know, Mike was a big fan of, I should say, Ron was a big fan of Mike and, and vice versa. And then it, it, the genesis came together. And uh, boy, for a little, you know, $2 million film to have Mike Shannon and the great Ian McShane and Tom Lennon and Christina Hendricks and Judy Greer and, and uh, gosh, I'm leaving out to another star. But, you know, once that came together, um, I, I won't say it was easy, but. You have all those stars, even though the film was kind of bizarre and, and featured furries and all, all kind of weird elements. Um, you know that came together in, in uh, pretty quickly, and we shot it over uh, uh, over uh, the, the Christmas holidays. Uh, it must be five years ago at this point. The story you mentioned, we were you know making a two million dollar film upstate, uh, non union. Uh, I, I I am a believer in unions. Um, however, there are certain situations where, because of you know union rules, it's very very difficult to make a low budget film. So uh, none of this is positive in a manner that, uh, you know, there's anti-union. I say this sitting right upstairs from my auntie, who's in my building. I know. I love that. Um, so uh, what you're referring to is the day I went off to Sundance, because uh, um, we were in the middle of production, uh, that's when the IA showed up. And Ron was there, sort of, uh, you know, general in, in the field. And he had, I forget his dog's name, but he'd walk his dog uh, every night. And, uh, you know, one evening he'd, he'd and we all knew that it was a possibility the union was going to come in and ron saw a guy in a suit and it didn't make sense except maybe the guy was a union guy so ron and his you know uh you know being ron approached the guy and 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 uh you know ron can be very intimidating as big a hearted guy as he as he is and uh he basically said who are you you know who are you and uh you know we dealt with things very politely and i have good relationships at the union and Uh, you know, we, we had treated our crew. I like to think very well. And, and, uh, you know, the union didn't get the vote and we, we, you know, we moved on, you know, in peace without the union, I will say the, the IA and I have strong relationships there. I work closely with Dan Mahoney and, and he was very much a gentleman about it. And, uh, you know, we got through that production because, you know, Ron, Ron sort of in in character, which is part him basically said, not on my watch, you know, and it worked. you know, which doesn't always work with the union, but, uh, if you're in a room with Ron Perlman, again, he's, uh, he's imminently huggable, but he's also like, you know, he's the real deal.
0: Well, he, he described it in a, in, in a way that, that I, whether mythology or not, where he basically told them to get off his set. You know? Yeah, that's, that so, kind of is what it boils down to, and he did so a, in, a, like, in a polite like, way. Almost like, you know, old school shotgun style, like get off my set. Uh, we'll talk at another time. This is the wrong time to be doing this.
1: I think that uh, and yes and again I I know that Ron dealt with it you know uh, professionally and and politely oh, yeah. however when you're standing across from Ron you know it, it sort of comes with that you know Yeah
0: yeah yeah he was uh, he was able to to finesse that moment absolutely perfectly yeah. yeah when Ron
1: steps in it's not exactly like the Eastwood I can't whistle but Da-na-na-na-na. like this there's, there's he comes with a sort of Aura and theme music you know
0: yes yes he does come with uh uh with with theme music for sure um let's wind back the clock i i i wanna i know very little about your early life growing up you grew up in new york in queens in one of the boroughs you uh your your, mom, your dad you said as you mentioned was a gambler and all that tell me a little bit about young jonathan gray ha. <laughs> Well, Charlie, I
1: was actually born in
0: Greenville, South Carolina. Not uh, uh, born in New York. Okay, even better. Yeah,
1: I, I uh, my parents uh, were both in the Bronx uh, and uh, moved down to South Carolina in 1963, ostensibly um, for business reasons. Well, my father was always a gambler and a hustler, uh, uh, you know. So you know, as soon as he landed in South Carolina, he he firmly embedded himself in the in the uh, you know in the gambling world. And we were uh, you know unusual. It was sort of the the. You know, the trifecta, we were from New York, which didn't go over that well in, you know, Greenville, South Carolina in the 60s. My father's a Jew and my mother's Irish Catholic, you know, we're, they're both past now. So, you know, I, I, as far as I know, I'm one of two Irish Jews from the great state of South Carolina. But growing up in the 60s there, I grew up across the street uh, from Bob Jones University on Wade Hampton Boulevard. Bob Jones University, if you don't know, is the last desegregated school in the country. So it was an interesting atmosphere to, to grow up in and one in which my mother would tell a story about uh, being in a beauty parlor in 1963 and all of a sudden everyone sort of broke into applause and she was wondering what going, what was going on and she heard people saying the president got shot and she presumed it, you know, it must have been the president of the mill or something. Of course, she didn't think it was nice anyway, but then she found out that they were applauding the assassination of, of JFK. Here's an Irish Catholic girl from the Bronx, you know? So that was the sort of atmosphere in, in, the, in the South in the 60s. But I will say, and I'm not sure if you have to bleep this out, my father didn't give a shit about nothing. And I say that in a manner that, I mean, he really did give a shit about the important things. But, you know, this goes back to the 60s, black, white, yellow, green, gay, straight. It didn't make any difference to him whatsoever. So putting my father in South Carolina in the 60s, he just kind of did everything, you know, he did what he did as a gambler. And ultimately, in a much longer story, Charlie, I mean, we left South Carolina in 1974 to be closer to my father, who at that point uh, was in Danbury, uh, a club fed a federal penitentiary uh, penitentiary in, in Connecticut, serving with uh, with uh, all the Watergate boys. With uh, you know, Liddy was was cellmate for a while. Oh um, my! I,
0: I didn't know that. Oh yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, Charlie he he became the first person convicted of organized crime in the country. That is a fact. Somehow, this high-stakes professional gambler from the Bronx you know, became the, the the first guy, you know, convicted under the predecessor to RICO, uh, the Racketeer Influenced Corrupt Organization Act. Prior to that, there was something called the Omnibus Criminal Control and Safe Streets Act, which was, uh, you know, promulgated by uh, Hoover, who always wanted to have some statute in place that was oriented towards going after organized crime, wise guys, racketeering like that. You know, when they got, uh, you know, Capone, it was under tax laws. So they put together this statute that involved, and, and again, this is a longer conversation, a conspiracy of five or more people engaged in interstate commerce, which is what made it federal, and a violation of underlying state law, which is the gambling. So again, a longer conversation. But my father found himself right in the middle of that. I am also, I'm sitting across from a desk that has every bit of record and interest. I got personal letters from J. Edgar Hoover to the uh, U.S. attorney in South Carolina, you know, speaking about my father and how we're gonna bring him down. I got all of it through freedom of information. That is again a longer. Story, but growing up in the South in the 60s, uh, you know, my first memory, Charlie, is literally hiding under a desk in our garden apartment in South Carolina with federal agents making their way into the house and standing on top of the desk I was hiding under, pulling down a drop ceiling to take out the wires because wires back then were literally wires because our, our, my entire life was tapped. I've got wiretap tapes in my desk that I got through Freedom of Information. So I wasn't aware of it as a kid, you know? I mean, you just grow up in the environment you grow up in, and that's the context of your universe. You know, now people tell me their father's a dentist. I'm like, a dentist? That's insane, what was that life like? So I know <laughs> I grew up in a, in a uh, you know, in an unusual setting, but it was the setting I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a world in which I would sit in the backseat of a car, you know, at a Howard Johnson's, you know, in Columbia, South Carolina, counting bags of cash as a four-year-old. I kid you not, even through law school, you know, I'd go meet Jimmy or Basil and, and you know, I'd have, you know, $80,000 in my pocket and I had a safe deposit box. It was an unusual way to, to grow up. So table setting wise, Charlie, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's rich, you know, and unusual. I grew up in casinos. The only time we ever traveled was to Vegas, to the islands, later to Atlantic City. If there wasn't a casino or gambling involved, there wasn't a vacation or a trip. And the wow. only two days that didn't involve gambling, the only two days were the day before and the day after the major league baseball all-star game. Those were the only two days, period, full stop. Baseball, football, basketball, every single game on the board, college included um, in, in basketball and, and, uh, and football. Uh, and, and that's what my father did. And, and uh, again, I, this is a longer conversation, but yeah. it basically was, it was arbitrage, Charlie. He was able to figure out that there was a disparity in the betting lines between bookmakers in different jurisdictions, and he found a middle position. He was buying low and selling high as part of the same transaction and turned the books on themselves, the bookmakers on themselves. Again, longer conversation. He did that forever, and that's why he went down uh, for the organized crime thing, because he was betting with bookmaking offices all over the country. Chicago, New York, California, South Carolina, Florida because they all had different betting lines, right? So he was able to, you know, bet the Jets in 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 Miami and take seven and a half points. I know I'm getting a little bit inside baseball here. Uh, and bet the same game in New York and bet on the Dolphins and lay four points. You know what I mean? So that spread between four and seven and a half is where he lived. I, I, I can't help but get deeper into it. Yeah. The reason he was the target for the federal, um, uh, uh, you know, action was because – he was betting both sides of the ball games, Charlie. So he would bet ten thousand on the Jets and ten thousand on the Dolphins, and just ride that middle position. So you look at a weekend on a Saturday afternoon with fifty-one college football games. He might have ten million dollars bet on the ball games, but guess what? Five millions on each side of the game. So the only thing he's risking is what they call the vig. I am getting far too inside baseball yeah. here, and basically was just turning the books upside down. And when the jury looked at the, uh, you know, at the numbers, it was like, oh my god, this guy's betting ten million dollars. The, the reality was he was risking five percent of that, and that was only if he didn't middle or side a game. And that is too detailed the description. Wow. But this, by the way, is also an environment in which the judge John S. Martin in Columbia, South Carolina, um, you know, in a sidebar with my father's counsel said, "I know the Jew did it." So this is the environment that he was, you know, operating in. Right. And by the way, just it just rolled right off him. You know, he got a kick out of it. He enjoyed his experience in the, in the club fed. He lost weight. He was eating three square a day. He was teaching Liddy how to play bridge.
0: Like, you know, anyway, I could go on and on. My God, Fantastic. I hope there's a movie someday.
1: Charlie, I don't know if it's a movie or a book or a series or an interpretive dance piece. I have collected so much information, but like anyone else, it's so personal. It's tough to, I'm not shy about it. Clearly. I've got 900 pages of transcript, you know, sitting in my desk, Charlie. I spent, uh, you know, the better part of a, a year with a, a former para, a paralegal named Adam Zenko, um, sitting in the back seat of a of a diner down in the financial di- district, just telling stories. and And Adam was great. He would tell me when I was repeating myself, as you should. Uh, and then he, he took those transcripts, and you know, excuse me, took the, the tapes and transcribed them. And now I've got sort of a recitation of my entire life. I also, Charlie, and this is, uh, you know, uh, everything's a longer story. Mm -hmm. I woke up one day in early March of 1998 with absolute urgency, um, you know, that I finally needed answers to all the questions I had, you know, with my father. And, uh, you know, uh, I'll give you the truncated version of it, which is nothing short of a miracle in my life. I went to see my father and knew for whatever reason that I had to get answers to these questions. We had been working together uh, on his story. I'm not a screenwriter, but I realized my way of, of getting inside with my father was positing it as if it was, you know, a fictional story. Yeah. And he had a great idea for a movie, Charlie. This was after I had my first couple of films at Sundance, so I already had a little bit of experience. He had an idea about a, a movie about a professional gambler named Jack, his name and his profession, except in the movie, it didn't have... He didn't have a family or kids. So it ignored all the sort of serious elements. And instead of having a wife and kids, he had a brother that he magnanimously put, you know, through law school and so on. So I went down to see my father with a tape recorder and a plan, which is I needed answers to all my questions. It was no more fooling around or, or, you know, politeness about it. And I went down there with a tape recorder and I asked my father a simple question, which is a great one to ask, you know, in any sort of narrative film setting. Speaking of the character Jack, I I said, all right, Jack goes into dinner, what does he order? He goes into a restaurant, what does he order for dinner? And my father, in his inimitable style, said, you know, who gives a shit what Jack orders for dinner in a restaurant? I said, well, I'm not saying it's a scene in the movie, but if Jack is your central character, and this is a universe that you're creating, and you're the god of this universe, you sure as shit better know what Jack orders for dinner in a restaurant. If you expect an audience to believe this is a three-dimensional character, then you need to understand this character. And he understood exactly what I was saying, and I didn't waste any time. Charlie, I said, "Why is Jack a gambler?" And his first, you know, reaction was, "His parents died in a car accident when he was 15. He had a, it was bullshit." And I called him out on it. You know, I said, "Died in a car accident? Like, what does that mean? Was it a Chevy? Like, what is you know?" And then he paused and said, "Well, maybe it's easiest for me to just tell you about my own life." And that I took a swing, I made contact, and we spent the next, you know, three days on tape, I came back with nine hours of tape with answers to all the questions I ever had, Charlie, albeit posited in the context of this screenplay, where he would say, you know, Jack's the dice table and I throw the dice, you know, it's like borderline schizophrenic. I took those tapes, got on a plane, and I never never saw my father again. He died that night, uh, wow, listen to me, of a heart attack in his sleep. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, talk about a blessed life, Charlie. You know, I don't know where I would be if I didn't get all that information.
0: Wow. Um,
1: so I am a, I, you know, I've said this probably eight times already. I, you know, I, I'm just blessed in in, in in certain ways. So I have all that. I've got, you know, 400 pages of transcripts of conversations with my father and that struggle to get all the information and to bring it quite literally home. So, you know, all that is, uh, and thanks for making me miss the out again, Charlie. All that is sitting in a drawer right over there. Oh, there's Dean Martin.
0: Uh, you know,
1: right over there. You know, and, and, and I, I, you know, I will find the time, you know, to, to do it. And this, this, you know, sort of COVID time has given us all an opportunity to slow down a little bit and contemplate a lot of stuff in our lives. And at some point I'll get to that, um, you know, Charlie, and you cut me off by going on too much. No, no, I love
0: it. And, and, and I, I'm glad you, 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 you referred to what's going on right now, because that's actually a transition I wanted to make anyway. Listen, we're, this is the new normal. Where we are right now. I mean, oh my God, new normal, right? But
1: but it's- hey, Charlie, forgive me, Charlie, for one second. I'm so sorry. I have to use. I don't know what you do in this. I have to use the restroom. Can we take a break for a minute?
0: Uh, <laughs>
1: what do I do? <laughs> uh,
0: I guess we can take a break. I, I, I'm i gonna have. To- I can
1: leave this rolling, but I have to. You know, other than uh, you know having an embarrassing moment, I just got to run for, for One minute. <laughs>
0: Well, we'll walk with you and we'll figure it out, yeah.
1: I'll walk with you, but I'm gonna leave you outside the restroom.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, if we
1: can, uh, this must have happened before in in, uh, your other wonderful interviews. Yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: Charlie, forgive me, I'm gonna leave you here for one minute I'll be right back. All right, I'm back, Charlie, sorry about that. uh, When nature calls, there's very little you can do about it.
0: All right, so let's, uh, this is gonna be uh, an interesting moment. I'm actually, while you're doing this, I'm making a coffee, which is fantastic. And Good. Well,
1: I, I, this is an opportune moment. I'm going to, uh, what, should I, should I uh, transition out of the office? Can I just walk to a different location?
0: <laughs> well, I, wherever you want to go, as long as we're, uh, we're continuing the cast. So, yeah. We
1: shall do that. I am going to. All right. I am walking down the uh, the hall here, Charlie. I'm
0: going to sit in the conference room for a bit. Okay. Changing locations. Changing the setting. Uh, there we go. There you go. Back in. Back in. All right. Yeah, this is going to Setting co- looks familiar, Charlie. This is going to drive my uh, my, my <laughs> dear Olivier slightly crazy, but that's the way it goes. Uh, Olivier
1: used to me driving him crazy, Charlie. Oh, good. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. Sorry about so, that. We you,
0: you you flashed uh, before you went to the restroom. Uh, <laughs> You flash Dean Martin, which I know for me uh, uh, is an icon of a tremendous interest of yours, which is the Rat Pack in general. Correct? I mean, you have uh, you have uh, you have a tremendous interest in the era of Sinatra, uh, Sammy Davis, Dean Martin, uh, and and Vegas, and all of that stuff, right? Those stories.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I uh, you know, having grown up in casinos my my, my whole life, it's sort of it's, it's a natural, you know, I. I and I had the privilege of, of meeting, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Martin, when I was a, a young boy. Uh, the casinos that we would stay at, coincidentally, were were the Sands and, and later the MGM, uh, which is, happened to be Dino's haunts back then. So, uh, you know, I, I I met him in passing as a child, I, you know, was just sort of, you know, doe-eyed. But um, and Sinatra, you know, I, I'm not a music, uh, you know, person per se, but I grew up with 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 Sinatra vinyl you know, it was just there, you know, my father liked, uh, you know, uh, Sinatra, although he always had a beef with Sinatra, who apparently flirted with my mother, you know, uh, you know, a little bit too strong, uh, you know, back in the uh, in the 70s. But that notwithstanding, you know, I, I had Sinatra records there. And, and I kind of fell in love with with that music as well. Like, you know, it, it you know, it was just something that sort of carried me. It, 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 it was kind sort of a timeless thing. And, um, you know I, I still have the sinatra library you know in my you know in my head charlie and you know the, the dean martin of it all uh and i can't get too deep into this because it's uh you know it's something that uh, the project we have in development but you know uh, uh, fortuitously i I, uh, I i actually met the representative of the uh, of the dean martin uh, uh estate uh, about a year and a half ago or or, or so and uh you know over the course of the next you know several months you know working with with the trustee and and uh uh you know and, and other folks uh you know including bruce etc um you know i i'm actually the first person they've ever granted uh, exclusive access to all the the assets of the dean martin estate so i'm i'm uh you know currently developing a uh a docu-series about uh about dean martin uh wow. called awesome. the invention of cool and uh i i i'm i'm uh, going to err towards the side of being, um, you know, conservative. I don't want to talk too much about it. It's, uh, it's still a project in, in, uh, sure. you know, in development, but boy, it gave me an opportunity to dive, you know, deeply into, uh, you know, Dean Martin and the Rat Pack, you know, of course, and, and learning a lot about, uh, you know, the, the era because the, you know, Dean Martin and, you know, in particular, Dean Martin brought the, that, that incarnation of the Rat Pack together. The Rat Pack actually goes back to Humphrey Bogart and, and like that, the Rat Pack we know, as you said, is, you know, is Dean and, uh, you know, and Frank and, and Sammy and Peter Lawford, and, you know, a couple of the others, they were the core, you know, group that uh, that came together, it was Dean Martin, after he broke up with Jerry Lewis, that, uh, you know, that decided he didn't want to just have the spotlight himself, he, he had launched a successful career in Vegas, and, uh, you know, in films, but, uh, you know, he put the call into Frank, and, and that was the impetus for starting the, you know, that era of the Rat Pack. You know, there's a couple of things about Dean Martin. I think it, it, it's more than just the music and the ear and and, and that appeal for me. Um, when, when I when I uh, you know had the privilege of sitting down with the with the the trustee of the estate, um, you know, which we did at the Polo Lounge at the Beverly Hills Hotel and Dean's booth, like just amazing to be there. You know, one of the first questions she asked me was was what was it about Dean Martin that that appealed to me? And back to my dad. You know, I, I quoted my father who didn't have that many life, uh, life lessons to share with me, but but the ones he did really stuck with me. And one of the things he said to me was, uh, and this is out of context, but he'd say, Jonathan Gray, that I knew he was serious. He'd say, Jonathan Gray, I don't give a shit if it's the plumber or the king of Siam. It doesn't make a shit of difference to me. Listen to that. I don't give a shit if it's the plumber or the king of Siam. It doesn't make a shit of difference to me. I mean, philosophically the, that, that that is where I live. Like, uh, you know, so much of what I'm saying feels self-serving, so forgive me that, but I don't give a shit if it's the plumber or the king of Siam. I am as likely, for better or worse, to forget the movie star as I am the janitor, like, you know, and vice versa, you know, and that is such a fundamental philosophy, you know, uh, that that drives my life, Charlie, you know, and the, the community that we, you know, managed to bring together is so diverse and so eclectic. It's not just big shots or little shots or shots at all, you know, Right. So that's one thing that, you know, when I said that to to Laura, the trustee, you know, we both got, I'm a clearly a weepy guy. We both got, you know, touched. He said, that was Dean. You know, when Dean Martin used to, you know, sit in the in the polo lounge and all the celebrities would come and fawn all over him because he was Dean Martin, he wasn't the least bit interested. He just wanted to talk about the Dodger game with the busboys. That's another way of saying it. And that meant the world to me. The other uh, thing that, that resonated was... You know, and this one is, is quite simple and, and uh, mildly obscene, you know, life lesson. He'd say, Jonathan Gray, don't give anyone a reason to fuck with you. How's that for a life lesson? Jonathan Gray, don't give anyone a reason to fuck with you. And that also, you know, is a great philosophy. And it's a complex, you know, sort of uh, analysis that goes into landing at a place where no one's going to you know, screw with you. You know, I shared that with, with you know, Laura as well. And it, it kind of was, you know, Dean Martin. Was almost impossible in, in certain respects. He transcended, you know, uh, you know, film and television and stage and music. I mean, he kind of had it all. But what impressed me, uh, you know, uh, probably most about Dean Martin when they were, you know, together as the Rat Pack, and 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 uh, if, if you do a little research, you'll you'll see a lot of folks think that Kennedy never gets elected. Back to JFK, Kennedy never gets elected if not for the Rat Pack and the the support that they gave him, mm-hmm. and you know. Frank was, was, uh, you know, was obviously, you know, tied to certain mob connections and so on. And there's a, there's a story about, uh, you know, one of the events that they held, um, you know, promotional event for, you know, for JFK. And even though Dean may have, you know, been fine with the politics of JFK, you know, these were events that were organized and supported by the mob. And there's one story where it's Dean on stage with, uh, with Sammy and, uh, and Frank and Sam Giancona, who was like the head of all the families at the time. Is in the audience and before the show started, Dean looks right at Giancono and points at him and says, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this for him. And points to Sinatra. Wow. I mean, that's not cojones. That that's a that's a, a next level to be able to look oh, yeah. that guy in the eyes and say, I'm not doing this for you. I'm not into that. I'm doing it for him. You know, and somehow they never screwed with him because he just he just transcended all of it. So uh, obviously, I'm enthused and excited about uh, about doing this because it's more yeah. than just a biopic about Dean Martin. He was yeah. a very mysterious person, but yeah. it is covering, you know, culturally the history of this. I'm going to say it once, great nation, and will be again. You know, from you know the '40s through the '80s. You know, from yeah. pre-Jerry through the Cannonball Run years. So here I am, inadvertently pitching it, but I'm really excited about it.
0: But 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 one of the one of the the foundations for the image of the Rat Pack. It was an image of, of, of these guys together, freedom, pleasure, uh, a, a lifestyle, yep. all of the components of, of, of the image that they represented, you know, a little bit of, you know, I, I don't want to say I'll tell you, but you know, you know, a little bit of the, they're, they're, they're the antiheroes. They're the naughty guys that you love. Right. Am I right? Yeah, I
1: think there's, I think there's, there's truth to that. I mean, and uh, as, as an aside, you know, Dean Martin wasn't the drinker that everyone thought he was. I mean, that was all a facade and part of the act. There's, there's a term that came up in, in, the, in, the, in Dean Martin land, um, which I didn't coin. Uh, it may have been Nick Toshis, who wrote a book about him. Uh, I'm going to probably mispronounce it. Forgive me, my Italian friends. Menafreguismo. Menafreguismo, which basically means I don't give a shit. You know, uh, you know, it's just sort of a carefree attitude that you're referring to. Now I say that, uh, you know, in a manner that this didn't suggest you didn't care about people or anything, but it's just like, you know, I'm going to do what I do. I have a path to follow and I'm going to do it. And I don't give a shit about any of the other, other variables. That doesn't mean you can't leave, lead a, you know, a a true and honorable life, but you know what? I, I, I was going to say, I don't give a shit. I, I do. That's to say I really do. But you know, I've, I've chosen a path, Charlie, that, uh, you know, I've kind of done my thing, you know, and, you know, which has not been alone. It's been, you know, with an incredible, you know, community. But, you know, I haven't gone a traditional path because I've, you know, I feel like I've had that strength, whether bestowed upon me by my, you know, parents or or even to a certain extent, you know, sort of being a fan of the Sinatra and Dinos of the world back then. But, you know, we all we all are the result of all these, you know, incredible influences.
0: I mean, I think you know. Not to coin a not to coin a song, I do it my way. You 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 you've done it your way, um, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> While being young at heart, while being young at heart. fairy
1: tales can come true, Charlie.
0: That what... can happen to you. <laughs> so back to COVID nineteen. Before we uh, uh, roll off into the sunset together, because it is important that we talk about the now and the new normal. Because obviously, you know. I've been doing this podcast now for over a year of recording. And uh and we we did all of them in studio and everyone was uh uh en- enjoying uh uh all of our our freedoms. Um and now what what is quite interesting is and I and I didn't sort of feel it when it first hit before I started to do the podcasts on Zoom. I started to realize. Well, wow! The whole world just opened up to me. I can do uh, one of these with a guy in London, a guy in Hong Kong, a guy in L.A., uh, someone in Europe, and 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 do it all from my home and create content. I, I think to myself for a moment now. We're in a we're in a strange world, and and as you commented uh, in our last conversation when you were talking about uh, 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 the changes that have taken place, even for you within. Uh, both producing and 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 as an uh, as an attorney uh, going to focus from narrative to documentary was uh was just kismet for you guys I mean narrative has come for a moment anyway to a bit of a standstill there's a hunger for a new pipeline of content. people who shot stuff can continue to cut away like the projects i 've been working on but you know the 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 demand uh uh will need to be met when there's been a long space of narrative content not happening and uh and we're in a very strange environment right now and uh uh and we have to see daylight off in the future but the the first thing that comes back inevitably is unscripted and documentary. Which you're focusing yeah. on, it's
1: become. You know, i I, I, I mean, you know, I, I, I pivoted my, my, career, uh, you know, uh, back at the beginning of this year to really working almost exclusively on documentaries, which, you know, was kind of dumb luck in terms of, of, the state of affairs right now because the docs are still chugging along, as you say, particularly the archivally driven docs. There's a natural social distancing in the post process that, you know, accommodates that. Uh, you know, and I haven't figured out, and, and as far as I know, no one's figured out exactly what the next step is in terms of physical production. You know, I hear about you know uh, you know quarantining crews and cast for a certain period of time, but there's a lot of fallacies in that logic. Charlie, I you know it's a brave new world, and I I surely haven't uh, you know figured it out. I hear a lot of folks talking about this need for content, and of course, you know uh, you know and at the same time, there's a there's there's a whole glut of product, you know that that didn't go through can at least not the can that we know or you know South by or Tribeca. So the marketplace is is you know kind of weird right now, to say, you know, the least. Um, I have been focusing, you know, independent of, of what's going on in, in COVID land, you know, on documentaries, and I, I sort of, you know, uh, am, am in a, a good position to continue advancing those those projects, you know, now. Yeah. Um, you know, I am still lawyering, and I'm, I'm starting to see, uh, you know, uh, social distance guidelines and production sort of, uh, you know, guidelines being promulgated at this point by the Netflixes and the HBOs of the world and so on. But uh, you know nobody's you know quite figured it out yet i mean there's there's just you know too many real world sort of variables to um you know that that aren't uh, you know that aren't fixed yet to you know to be able to even make a, a you know a responsible and intelligent decision about uh you know how to how to get back into production you know
0: yeah and 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 you know we wind back the clock to our relationships with with the the early icons of of independent distribution, like Ira Deutschman, who you mentioned before, Bob Bernie, uh, the late Bingham Ray, uh, uh, Jeff Lipsky, uh, uh, all of the the uh, people who were part of the, the forefront of independent distribution, going back in the the Weinstein, Cinecom, Fine Line era, and uh, and here we are uh, uh, today uh, uh, with, I think, theater chains. Uh, potentially uh, uh, at risk.
1: You know? Yeah, yeah, theatrical. We God knows. I mean, how they've even survived this, you know, this layoff, Charlie. But
0: uh, I, I want AMC. How does it work? It's like uh, uh, what what comes back. There are there's one independent cinema that's talking about it. Ah, now we're in the mixed theater. I love it. We're in the Atmos stage all right let me see if i can there we go moving around i love it we're 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 in a a a gigantic studios uh facility (laughs) tour i love it yeah so um yeah i mean you know we're 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 in a transition now and uh um certainly uh streaming content is on fire so the demand is there um and all of the new channels are are popping one at a time, whether it's the NBC U- Universal's newer version that they're calling Peacock or HBO Max, um, and uh, uh, every player is 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 in the game, and uh, and and uh, they're uh, and and it's and it's it's ironic that some of them, not all of them, because obviously Amazon, Netflix, and Others have, uh, have Disney Plus have already launched. There's, there's some that are just in the process of, of, of launching their, their networks. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, yeah it, it is. And it's, a, it's, I mean, it's a constant, I mean, it's one of the reasons that the industry is, is interesting because it's constantly in, in, in flux, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, a new platform coming to, to bear or a new manner in which information is conveyed. I'm a simple person. Like, you know, ultimately what it comes down to, and this is as simple as pie is, You know, content is such a broad term, you know, put the work in, you know, I see I've seen so many pitches over the years where they're kind of thoughtless, like, you know, spending the time to make sure that whether it's a feature or a limited series or a series, just figure out how to crack that code, you know, so to speak, before you land in front of the buyer And, and making sure that you have a grasp on who your audience is, if you're intending to go down a commercial route. Uh, you know, figure out who the market is first. I'm not saying that you should blindly cater to the market, but so much of it comes down to doing the work and presenting the, the project in a manner that convinces folks that not only, you know, is, is the project interesting, but uh, that you can deliver on it, you know, and, and what better way to do that than, you know, creating a, a deck that actually is, you know, goes beyond just clip art and uh, and misspelled, you know, copy, you know. That part of it, I always come back to, and it's a very simplistic approach: is spending the time, doing the research, doing the work, understanding your audience, and it's it's just such a fundamental part of the process that that gets brushed to the side sometimes. And it does make a difference to spell the person's name right who you're sending the package to. It does make a difference to format things properly, you know. Uh, you know, so spending the time and paying attention to that and. You know, like I, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't surrounded myself over the years with people smarter than I am. You know, I couldn't do what Bruce Meyerson does. I couldn't do what Brian Devine does or, you know, Jason Orans or, or Pamela Ryan at Gigantic. All these folks are contributing. So uh, that, you know, is, is, is probably the best advice anyone could give is is to surround yourself with folks who, who are, are, you know, better at stuff than you are, you know, whatever it happens to be. It's not different than that uh, step stepping out to the making of the film and and hiring a cinematographer. I couldn't shoot a movie, nor could I act in a movie.
0: Right on. And, 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 you know, apropos of the, the, the filmmakers in your history, um, we have people that are very close to you within the gigantic family, like Josh Zeman. uh, And, uh, and then uh, producers like Eisen Robbins with Blue Caprice and, Films like that are like sort of important landmark moments and Crop even that was uh, was done by by Josh. Um, you know, there's a whole there's a family and uh, and, and 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 you, ah. have, you have been the uh, the in, in a sense sort of the, the leader. In that in that world for years.
1: I I am not just knee this. I'm not sure about I, I. I've been a leader of that world. I, I have been a facilitator, Charlie, and
0: facilitator, and, and, yeah. and
1: I, I'd like to think I've I've created a a, a a you know what I I know that I created a space that people feel safe in, you know that they don't feel like they to going to get their 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 pockets picked, not literally, but you know uh, you know sort of broader than than that, and and you know that sometimes just involves you know lighting some candles and creating a, a space that people feel comfortable in, you know. So that's, that's been my, uh, you know, great privilege, you uh, Charlie. I got to, you know, and I'd, we're probably coming short on time. I want to thank you for wearing that First Amendment t-shirt because that's where everything comes back to, uh, and if you can't read it, and I don't need to look at it, Congress <laughs> shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or bridging the freedom of speech or of the press, Charlie, All right? Correct. It's so important. And those last two stanzas are just as important. The right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. It's what we do. It really is what we do in terms of working in the arts. And that part of it is, you know, as important as anything else. It's why it's, you know, I, I would take one more walk if we get a complete tour of the, tour of the office here. But those words are emblazoned, as, uh, as you know, as you walk into this office, you can't get past you know, a nine foot, uh, you know, first amendment. So to watch this podcast, if what they take from it is get to know the first amendment and how important it is, particularly in these troubled times. Absolutely. There'll (laughs) be some value from this. There she is, Charlie.
0: Ah, there she is at the right at the front door of the law firm, the first amendment done in beautiful calligraphy. You know how we're going to roll this podcast out though, you know, what's that? you know how we're going to finish the podcast, right? You're, you're, you're going to sing for me.
1: Ha ha. I, I don't mind singing, Charlie. And I thought about uh, it a little bit because, um, you know, there's a little something called copyright law, you oh. know, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and for example, singing a Sinatra track, you know, it, it's actually an issue theoretically in, in, uh, under copyright law, but I figured out a way through it. It's one of the, one of the, the basic fundamentals in documentary film, which is where I'm living these days is fair use. Yeah, it's copyright law. Guess what? Sometimes runs right in the face of the First Amendment and freedom of speech and all that. So as long, generally speaking, as you're using copyright material in a different context, you know, with some commentary and criticism, then you can kind of get away with it.
0: Yeah, you know. And, and we love, we love Frank, and 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 the amount of nights at 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 the law firm, and of course at our old favorite location, Circuit Tobacco, now Soho Cigars. There were moments of, uh, of real pruning that happened, and I, I would be remiss in in not having a moment where <laughs> where, where where the uh, the man himself would 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 give us a little demonstration of this.
1: Story. Charlie, I am I am happy to sing a couple of notes. I'm going to go right back to the song that has inspired and influenced me, you know, for most of my life. Um, and and I and you know I am singing this song in the in the context of providing, you know, some commentary about the industry and some commentary about how one maintains inspiration. This is just me setting the table for the fair use, how one maintains inspiration, you know, moving forward in the industry, Uh, you know, and it goes something like this, Charlie. Fairy tales can come true. It can happen to you. If you're young at heart for it's hard, you will find to be narrow of mind if you're young at heart. And if you should survive to 105, look at all you'll derive out of being alive. And here is the best part, you had a head start, if you are among the very young at heart a very abridged brief version within the bounds I think of fair
0: use protection
1: under copyright absolutely
0: I, absolutely I I vote yes I vote yes <laughs> Charlie votes yes.
1: apologies to anybody who may be watching this I am not a
0: singer I am clearly a ham oh no but uh but the, the best of all hams love you so much thank you so much for for coming on the show and uh I I I uh, uh I I know that uh that there'll be uh, lots of people who will enjoy to watch this uh, little, little exchange here that we had today. It was tremendous. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlie. My privilege to have been here and
1: uh, I'll see you soon in real life. I hope. Yes, absolutely.
0: Thank you, brother. All right, Charlie. Uh, Thank you.